Smartcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know, the word physician in Hebrew, rofe, means healer. All physicians are healers. Now, I don't know that there are too many that would say, yes, I'm a healer, okay? But that's what we are. That's who we are. That's the origin, the word origin of who we are. Welcome to the Liberated Healer Podcast, where we touch on a variety of topics in the world of spirituality, energetic healing, and everything in between and beyond. Take an adventure on a shooting star with your host, Gina, offering wisdom, guidance, and everlasting love and support. Hi, my name is Gina Cavalier, and today we have Dr. Nathan Goodyear on a show, uh, The Liberated Healer. He is currently the medical director of a holistic integrated cancer healing center in Arizona, where he uses the principles and science of holistic nature and integrative therapies to treat and heal people with cancer. Cancer, yes, that word. And we are so grateful because we all pretty much know someone who has been targeted and by cancer, and his goal is to eliminate cancer, and one must heal if that is possible, and to help his patients deeply in this area of disease and prevention and resolution. And making it a wellness lifestyle. So through solution-based, holistic, integrated approaches founded on science. So welcome, Dr. Goodyear. Uh, Gina, so nice to meet you and see you. You too. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? I read that you were a football player and that's sort of where this started. Yeah, you know, when you're uh, when you're in college playing football, you think that you're, you know, life's life's always ahead of you. You're invincible. And that, of course, I thought I was going to play, uh, you know, in the NFL. But then what I discovered is I was too short and too slow. But uh, then two of the guys that I played with, they they passed, they died from massive cardiovascular events within five years. And that was kind of a wake up call for me because I, I, I mean, I was pretty heavy, heavy. I was at about 285. So as I got into my residency out of college and then through medical school, I knew I had to make a change. Of course, family was coming as well. So it was at that point that I I really began a transition to, well, if I'm going to talk to patients about living well and being healthy and I don't look the part, then my recommendations will hold no water. And so I wanted to have credibility with my patients because I wanted to lead them to wellness. And so I began with weight loss and lost too much, but have balanced things out. But then I, and so as I got into that wellness movement, I I got into the wellness movement in my practice as well. And uh, as so many people, it gets, you know, you start and you cut your teeth with hormones, but as you get into hormones, cancer's always, always in that mix. Yeah. Well, the estrogen. What what about my breast cancer risk? The estrogen. Well, what about my, you know, history of breast cancer, testosterone? What about my prostate cancer risk? So 
all of this kept creeping in. And so cancer was always finding its way in there. Then when I had my own tumor, then that was kind of, okay, that's it. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is my calling. This is my bold mission. At that point, a lot of my practice was cancer anyways. And, and then it was like, okay, that's it. And from then on, and I've been doing this now for, for almost five years. So you had your own cancer tumor and you had to go through that kind of process as well? Yeah, I had a pheochromocytoma. It's a rare tumor. It's a, it's a adrenal, adrenal gland tumor that uh, you overproduce catecholamines. And so my blood pressure was like 300 over 130. And uh, so, you know, a diabetic, even though I was as fit as can be, about 180 pounds and you know, exercising and doing all these things. It's just the adrenaline and noradrenaline get overproduced and that just creates metabolic dysfunction throughout the body despite, it's just from the tumor. So I, I always find it very interesting. That's why I ask because even in say my area of business, which is healing, sometimes I had to take a step back and not take clients for a few minutes as I process through something. And I'm always grateful because I can really understand in a deep way what they really are going through. And, you know, who knows if it's destiny or what, but I do feel that you can have a different level of compassion if you've actually gone through that. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that's what happened with you, but, you know, it's kind of interesting that way. So, um, you know, yeah, yeah, I'd love to touch on that real quick because okay. you're, you're absolutely correct. First of all, I love the, love the title of the podcast. Um, Thank you. The word, you know, the word physician in Hebrew, rofe means healer. Oh, so I didn't know all, that. all physicians are healers. Now, I don't know that there are too many that would say, yes, I'm a healer. Okay. But that's what we are. That's who we are. That's the origin, the word origin of who we are. But when, when doctors, you know, they, they did a, there was a survey, I think some 10, 12 years ago in Canada of oncologists as, and they asked them, would you actually take the prescribed therapies for that you prescribe for your patients for yourself if diagnosed with cancer? And over 70% of them said no. So they were on one side of the desk. Okay? Yes. And they recognized the impact of the patients on the other side. When you are a physician, which being a physician is, a, I think it's one of the highest calling. Absolutely. When you are a physician and then you have to exchange positions and be on that other side, all of a sudden, the emotions, the feelings, the, the thoughts, the anxiety, the fear, everything that encompasses a person with cancer, it, it becomes real. It's front and center. And it truly changes the perspective. And, and I think it's made me a better physician. It's made me a better healer. And, and I, I think it was, I don't think that was by accident. I think I was to learn from it. And so that's, that's, I just wanted to touch on that because I do think what you said there is very important. I think a lot of docs do not have that empathy, that connection to their therapies. And I think it really, it, it, it disconnects patients and doctors. And that word disconnect is the big part for me because you can feel it when you go in and, you know, I've had a lifelong doctor similar to you who I've had since I was 17 and he does exactly like a very similar to you at you in all kinds of areas. Um, 
he recently lost his license because he had given out COVID cards. So he's going through something as well. But there's not very many people. So now I have to go to the traditional way. And there is no connection. There's absolutely no connection. And I feel completely lost without him if I need anything. And I think that I feel that the need and the desire is more towards what you are kind of building, which is you do focus on one and really super important area. And then you really harness those treatments. You even help people locate a place to stay in Arizona, you know, while you're there. And then you really just do a total treatment plan and you've gone through it yourself. And a lot of the treatments just want to touch base on. So people, people know what we're talking about is insulin uh, therapy, IV therapy, uh, laser, hyperbaric oxygen, acupuncture, oxygen therapy, red light therapy, emotional counseling, which is so important through these type of things, lymphatic massages. So it's really looking at that whole body and doing what you need and then moving it through. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to get a, a treatment, say if they were to throw some kind of chemo, right? And then you don't have any aftercare, you know, you just supposed to lay there, you know, so this is a whole approach. So I just think that that is really fascinating. Yeah, you know, cancer doesn't happen because of one thing. I always tell patients the best answer to cancer is, of course, never get it. And that really comes into the wellness and preventative preventative strategy, which, you know, you kind of get what you, you lay. You know, if you go out and you're in the garden and you cultivate and fertilize and and really take care of and nurture that soil as you grow those plants, guess what? You get you get good production, you get good fruit, yeah. but if you don't, you don't water it, you don't cultivate it, you don't fertilize it, you're going to get what you sow there. And in life, it's really not that much different. Our bodies, it's the soil. So what we feed it, what we nourish it with, what we you know affected by sleep, stress, all these things, it impacts what fruit or lack thereof we grow and and cancer is obviously not a fruit it's 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 a rotten fruit but you can't also disconnect healing wellness from cancer because there was actually a study in 2019 called the prospective urban and rural epidemiology study that showed that now in high income countries cancer is the number one cause of mortality in adults so people look at it as in terms of cardiovascular disease but cancer is number 1 People may say, well, well, what's the connection to wellness or healing? Well, your greatest obstacle based on those numbers to wellness and healing is simply cancer. Because that word disease literally means the lack of wellness. That, that's, that's what it means. So the greatest obstacle to wellness in high-income countries right now is cancer. So they exist on polar opposites. Isn't that interesting, though, that... People with the most money and affluence, you know, are having this cancer more, you know, more rapidly, probably because we're not eating as holistic and, you know, we're around maybe a lot of toxins in the airs and stuff like that. So what is holistic integrative cancer care uh, and how does it differ from your conventional oncology? Yeah, great. You know, one of the one of the big things I think the misnomers that people get confused about, doctors included here is the evidence behind why we, why we do what we do. I would actually say there's more evidence behind a natural, holistic, and integrative approach than there is to conventional. Being in the science really opens up that, that awareness. 
And when you look at a natural, holistic, and integrative, natural means pretty much what it means. It's natural. And I think it's very important there to understand that natural doesn't mean easy. Because if we're going to follow the evidence, it's going to tell us to dose and deliver a therapy, though it may be natural, appropriately. So let's take kind of the flagship of integrative cancer treatment, vitamin C. If you're going to therapeutically dose and deliver vitamin C, you're going to have to work to achieve blood levels that are what research has showed is therapeutic in maximizing the cancer-killing effect of vitamin C. So with that, you have to follow the blood levels and raise the doses accordingly. And with that, you can get higher on the doses. And with vitamin C, that can create some nausea, some fatigue, obviously pales in comparison to chemo, radiation, surgical effects, but still it can come with issues. And so you, you, know, you mitigate that as well. In, holistic literally means something different. For most people, it means natural, but really holistic comes from a 19th century philosopher that really is saying, hey, we got to understand the whole. We, we can't be so compartmentalized in what we're doing and what we're thinking. We must understand an impact, the impact on the whole. And when you look at medicine, it's very compartmentalized. I mean, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Doctors don't communicate with each other. So it's just, it's crazy. So the whole holistic is just saying, we've got to recognize the whole, the impact of the whole. Because if we target a tumor, say somebody goes and gets chemotherapy, full dose. They get chemotherapy. And let's say it shrinks the primary tumor, destroys it, yet it destroys the immune system. And that is the stepping, stepping stone to the cancer spreading. Now, that's not speculation. That's the research. That's exactly what it does. In breast cancer, full-dose chemo will shrink a primary tumor, but it will destroy the immune system and spread it. So when you look at that, you go, wait a second, wait a second. That's not helping the whole. That's destroying the whole. And when you look at nature, this concept of destruction is your pathway to healing is ridiculous. It doesn't exist. So then when we look at integrative, it's understanding that we've got to integrate these therapies together. Yes. Nutrition, exercise, counseling, emotional work. Everybody wants to focus on the IVs. This may include supplements as well. Maybe even some repurposed medications. You know, you mentioned the insulin therapy. That's called IPT. That's a low-dose insulin-potentiated form of chemotherapy. So whereas you come in with that full dose, and I mentioned that the research in breast cancer shows that you'll spread the cancer that way. If you take a very low dose here, we're talking 5 to 10%, you actually can boost the immune system, not destroy it. So the point here is about bringing the evidence into the therapies, integrating the therapies, to really be precision and accurate based of what we're doing to target these two. Is that why, uh, from what I've heard is, um, see if you get a breast cancer and you go through rounds of chemotherapy, radiation and all that stuff, it it pops up somewhere else. I had a friend that had happened and she got ovarian cancer after that. Is that sort of what you're saying? It travels potentially to another location? A couple things there. That's a good question. Really good question. Because 90% of morbidity and mortality associated with cancer is when it spreads. So if a therapy does shrink a primary tumor, that is great. There's nothing bad about that. 
But if you're destroying the immune system, that and that in turn is leading to the spread, you are essentially causing 90% of the complications and the mortality associated with cancer. That is an unaccepted treatment modality. It's unacceptable. But what we are also understanding beyond that is a mechanism is cancer, when it's there, it's spreading very early, very early, much earlier than what we thought. And as it spreads, these cells will find their resting place, if you will, their new soil. It's called a seed and soil theory, theory anymore, but, and they will actually bed down, if you will, and they'll go dormant. Oh, then a, a big primary tumor, there's actually been research that has shown this, the big primary tumor somehow is keeping those areas dormant. Then you remove the tumor surgically and these, some type of suppressive effect because of that primary tumor is present. And then all of a sudden, these dormant tumors start to grow. So our understanding on this process is growing, it's expanding, but it, at least those two are the possibilities of how that happens. So if something happens where tumors pop up you know, in bone from breast cancer within two months afterwards, then it's probably related to the removing of the tumor and that, that, that latter part. But if we're looking at six to 12 months later and they got full dose chemo and surgery and radiation, then it's probably more of the treatment spreading it. Oh my goodness. So yeah. And so the integrative and the whole body, look at the whole body, you're, you know, you're just literally like flooding the whole body and infusing it with particular things that you, you administer, but it will help like locate those dormant cells and kind of do the whole body versus just picking out that one. We, you know, it, it's, it's our, our understanding on these dormant cells, these quice, they're called quiescent cells. It, it's fairly recent. So the ability to understand exactly what's going on in them and the environment, we don't know, but let me give you an example Along that line, there's there there are cells called cancer stem cells. Cancer yeah. stem cells are basically that backup copy. You know, everybody backs up their phone. That's great. Yeah. So we don't want data. That's exactly what cancer stem cells do. They back up the data. And it plays a role in resistance and it plays a role in metastasis and all these kind of things. But if you take high-dose vitamin C and couple it, with actually a very old antibiotic called doxycycline. Research has shown that that is a very good strategy in killing cancer stem cells. So that doesn't exactly correlate to those dormant cells that I was mentioning, but what yeah. I'm doing is giving you some understanding of how we might target that while the information is still not known. Because yes. the one thing about cancer, the one thing about treatment of cancer from a holistic, natural, and integrated perspective, or from a conventional perspective, for that matter, we will never know it all. No. If a doctor ever tells you they know it all, you need to run away as fast as you can because they don't know. Yeah. And what they don't know is what's going to hurt you. So, but new information always comes to the, to the top. And from that, we can learn and be better, better physicians as a result of that. And a couple of questions then. So how does this whole process kill a body? And then also, 
when are there I know there's different types of cancer or I think there's different kinds of and then they did go to parts of the body. So when you're looking at under a microscope, is there a variety of different types of cancer that you see in under a microscope? Or is it cancer is just the same kind of a cell, but it just happens to go in different parts of the body? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think the way a lot of people look at cancer, Gina, is that cancer is kind of some, you know, alien implanted in the body by some bad Sigourney Weaver alien movie, you know, Aliens 45 or something. And I say that a lot because it connects with people because cancer, those cells, they are the normal, they are a part of that individual's body. Yes. They are just a very abnormal, dysfunctional part. And people will say, there, there are people out there that will say cancer is cancer is cancer. Basically saying all cancers are the same. And that's, that, that's not true on a lot of levels. Number one is the origin of the cell or the tissue is obviously different. Breast, prostate, adrenal, brain, you know, all these things, they're different. But when you look at where there can be similarities, it's the similarities in the genetic mutations that are present, the, meta, the metabolic mutations and, and dysfunctions, the immune dysfunctions that are present. These are where some of that commonality can occur. Now, the, the, the grateful thing is this future area of what's called omics, genomics, epigenomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics, immunomodulomics, it's allowing us to really dive deep into the precision and accuracy of a holistic, natural, and integrative approach, as well as conventional. And so we can say, well, what is really the genomics and the metabolomics of what's going on here in the cancer? And then come in with a very specific target of natural, holistic, and integrative therapies. So it's not cancers, cancers, cancer. They're all the same. They have different origins. They have different behaviors. They have different mutations. Yet there'll be common threads of mutation and behaviors and immune dysfunction with it. So each cancer has to be approached from a unique individual perspective. Okay. So going back to that, the other question, how does it kind of destroy the body then? So how does cancer kill the body? Well, basically when you look at these, you know, these cells, uh, these cells are abnormal version of the individual. And what I, the, the equation I give there is it's like giving a box of matches to a 10 year old boy. You may give them a box of matches and then leave and go, you know, that, that probably wasn't really smart. They may burn the house down. But if you give them to a 35-year-old man, then that shouldn't be an issue. Shouldn't. But, you know, the point there is the environment. The environment is dictating the potential effect. So when you look at what cancer does and, and really how it, how it destroys the host, it needs that host to survive. But eventually what it does is it, it consumes everything and it overwhelms and really eliminates the body's ability to perform day-to-day -day normal functions. So there's a, there's a balance. And when that balance of the cancer really starts to take away from the body's ability to do its normal day-to-day -day function, then that's really how the process of cancer really takes on the mortality 
Obviously, it invades organs. It creates the dysfunction in the organs. But even when you look at somebody that has cancer in the liver, the liver will do normal things. But it's when that cancer overwhelms it in volume that the normal liver function can't. And then you start to get issues of liver failure, hepatic encephalopathy, all these things that show the liver has failed because the cancer has overwhelmed it. It has imbalanced that, 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 that process too much that it can't recover. And obviously it'd be better to start with your type of therapies, you know, prior to doing all of the really hardcore conventional therapies they might decide to do later on. But for example, how about, I do have a, a really close friend who has been through all of the chemo and the radiation and her whole body is broken down at this point. You know, she's on a walker. She's only 50. She had sinus cancer. So, mm-hmm. and she's actually in Arizona. And what do you, what would you say about somebody who's already been through all that and now to come to your place, who's already had all that stuff? Do you mm-hmm. treat them differently than if they're, you know, had come to you before all that? Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to, because a couple re- back up real quick. The patient that hasn't had any treatment, that's always the best position to be in when they come to our clinic because their immune system hasn't been destroyed. You know, the, all the treatments that lead to resistance haven't affected, haven't occurred. So most of our patients, though, that being said, do come in having had at least chemo, radiation, maybe even surgery. Okay. And, and we can still do really great things with those patients, but we have to understand that there's probably and very likely resistance there. Obviously, in those instances, it has spread. So we have to really approach it with a much, much more different perspective than we would uh, otherwise, because when you have resistance cells, when you have cells that won't respond to chemo, you, that won't respond to radiation, they don't respond to a lot of things, and you have to really sequence and combine therapies together to to work to restore sensitivity. And so that's not a you know unachievable challenge, but it just makes the challenge that much higher. Yeah. Wow. Oh. You know, I was looking at some of the other things that you have. You, you talk about the different cancers that you treat: prostate, breast. Uh, uh, pancreatic, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which I'm seeing a lot more of in the community. You also have Lyme disease and lupus and autoimmune disease, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis. Can you touch on, on a little bit of that stuff as well? Yeah, because, you know, cancer doesn't exist in a, in a bubble. And so, you know, people that come to us with cancer, that's what we are. We, we are, a, you know, naturalistic integrative cancer healing center. And, uh, they all, come though with coexisting issues as well. And that could be diabetes, hypertension, obesity, Lyme disease. Almost all of them have some form of autoimmune disease. So it's just, they go together. Okay. a, A body with disease is a body that doesn't typically just have one disease, which again, literally means the lack of wellness. It's typically gonna have multiple. Okay, so that makes sense. And then you, you speak about in a lot of your things that I've seen about vitamin C. Can we go down a little bit 
down that rabbit hole a little bit. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Vitamin C it's, and the reason why I talk about it a lot is because it's, it's, it's the flagship. I mean, there are tremendous other therapies, you know, curcumin, quercetin, melatonin, IPT, hyperthermia, methylene blue. So there's so many other things that we can do, but vitamin C is that one that's kind of been that for the last couple of decades, you know, the flagship, the, the tip of the spear, everybody recognizes it conventional or not. And, and so that's why I talk a lot about it because it's the one that comes under attack. Because they go, well, there's no science for this. It was really interesting on TikTok. Somebody put a question out to a to a, a small about vitamin C. And they said, ah, there's no science there. C, 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 there's nothing to this. And so I responded and said, well, how much time do you got? Because the question here is there's overwhelming science. And the question is, what specific aspect of the science do you want to know? So the point there is I always lead with the science and the science on vitamin C is overwhelming more than just vitamin C being a treatment of cancer, but that vitamin C can be used effectively with radiation. Vitamin C can be used effectively with chemotherapy. Vitamin C can be used effectively before and after surgery. So the point here and, and, used with immunotherapies. So all of these, you know, these drug ads that you see watching sporting events or TVs where the people are, you know, dancing on the beach, you know, chasing butterflies, and then they're talking about how the drug can make it fall off. You know, I, I get tickled at those because the beautiful music, the butterflies, and you're just so, says, oh, your head can fall off. It's like, well, that's not very good. Um, no. uh but vitamin C even can work in those immunotherapeutic drugs, Keytruda, Opdivo, these are drugs that Herceptin, these are drugs that can be helpful in targeting specific dysfunction in tumors, but vitamin C helps them work better. And it reduces the side effects. So what I tell people about vitamin C is that, look, hey, if you come from a conventional standpoint, hey, that's fine. Vitamin C can make those work better and reduce the toxicity and the side effects. But vitamin C on its own is a powerful anti-cancer therapy. And oh gosh, and it's it's just wonderful. Also, I, I the other thing I was coming up with on conventional oncology is sometimes they do additives to the chemo and sometimes those additives has even worse side effects than they will tell you. And I'm just mentioning that because there was a mass there's a mass torque that goes around and I, I can't think of the drug exactly but when they add it to the chemo it makes people's hair fall out permanently uh, and so and they what once they're healed from cancer or whatever i mean they have no hair left <laughs> uh, and they don't even and they'll never grow back it literally kills those cells and they the people going through can cancer are just trying to survive and they don't really look at all those side effects and how it's going to affect the rest of their lives and i worked with a lot of women who was like Great, I have no cancer, but I have no hair. I'm just can't. I feel so, not like myself ever again. So, you know, that that's is that's why this route is just you know if you can do it, it's so much more better. Looking at that whole body and you know those side effects are just disastrous. And there's another thing on your site that I want to talk about if you want to if you can mention a little bit about hormones and estrogen because 
uh, my friend who had breast cancer, she always had a worry after chemo, like if she's putting more estrogen in her body, you know, because they were telling her that, you know, it was just going to bring back her cancer or something like that. So it was kind of scary. So we had to watch all these different levels of things that she was doing to get not, you know, to avoid more estrogen. So do you hear about that or do you have any comments on that? Oh, yeah, because that's I mean, that's how I cut my teeth in the wellness movement was with hormones. And and by by my original training, I'm actually a gynecologist. So I, I, I understand hormones very differently than than most physicians and hormones. And I say things to connect with patients. And so this what I'm about to say connects with them, but it over it shows how oversimplistic and ridiculous how most practices, physicians approach hormones. Women are just simply an estrogen-fueled hot flash, and men are just simply a testosterone-fueled erection. Okay, that's the way they approach it. It's like, wow, well, you know. So, But it's, it's not true. So when you look at the estrogen, so if a woman has, say, estrogen-positive breast cancer, okay, that's what most people will recognize. Well, there's many other types of estrogen-sensitive types of cancer. In that instance, people will go, well, but I'm postmenopausal, so how, how am I making estrogen? Well, women still make estrogen after menopause. They just don't make as much to be able to cycle. And they make different types of estrogen. So it's not just estradiol, which is the prominent estrogen from the ovary. There's estrone, there's estriol. But then these parent estrogen compounds get metabolized. They get broken down into what are called estrogen metabolites. And these estrogen metabolites, many, some of them are actually potentially more carcinogenic than the parent compounds themselves. So sometimes it may not be the estrogen. It could actually be what the body's doing with the estrogens. So that's just the body making it. What about the, a person that's taking estrogen? Okay. You know, people go, well, I have low estrogen. So I was started on estrogen. And I always say, well, how, are you sure the body's doing the right things with it? And they go, I guess so. It's like, well, if there's dysfunction in the body, you can bet that it's not going to do everything right with it. Just because somebody has low T, low estrogen, low progesterone, doesn't mean when you replace it, the body's all of a sudden going to do everything right with it. it. It doesn't. But then that is using the receptors. A lot of people say, well, estrogen only can stimulate my cancer if it binds to that estrogen receptor. Well, that's not true. That, that is called the classic genomic pathway of receptor signaling. There's actually backdoors where estrogen will actually stimulate a cancer without using those receptors at all. Then open it to compound it even further. These hormones will cross communicate. There's actually a testosterone uh, metabolite called 3-alpha-androstandiol. It'll actually bind to the estrogen receptor. So, so when you look at these hormones, the way we do it is we, we evaluate all the hormones, the metabolites, the stress hormones, even neurotransmitters, because there are neurotransmitters that'll stimulate the estrogen receptor. And I, I don't mean to say that to, to, to overwhelm people, because I actually had a patient said in my office, they said, well, Dr. Goodyear, brevity is a soul of wit. And I said, well, true, but we're not trying to be witty. Yes, we want we want to be accurate. And so recognizing the complexity of it, that is helping us to recognize really, in a way, the simple nature of it. We can't deny the complexity. 
We have to accept it and then work within it. Well, how come I'm getting hot flash now? I didn't have one before. <laughs> yeah. Just talking about <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, and I always thought it was interesting because, you know, I'm kind of, I had a hysterectomy and then it kind of. Wow, uh, you're, you're young. Yeah, I had a hysterectomy and then it's kind of started uh, going into menopause a little early. And so they tried to do the bio things on me, but it made me really crazy. And then uh, when I was just trying to do stuff on my own for just a small amount of time, but I knew it wasn't right, I would go to like Whole Foods and look at, you know, estrogen and progesterone. And then I was like, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what I'm doing. I could just be completely throwing myself off. And I just thought it was so weird that they have those things there, unless somebody tells you to go get that specific thing, that people are just slapping this stuff on, on them. And have no idea if it's, it, you know, and I literally bought it and then never used it after that. Cause I was like this, no, I'm not, I don't know how this works. I'm not putting this cream progesterone on. Nobody told me to get this, but in the beginning. That- yeah. And Gina, I'm not even touching on the environmental toxicants, the toxins out there that can be estrogenic mycotoxins, which are toxins that come from fungi. The many of these are estrogenic, you know, a lot of the environmental toxins people are aware of, like coming from uh, plastic, BPA, uh, you know, th- that's estrogenic. So the point is, it, it's not just a hormone you're making. It's a hormone you may be being exposed to. It may be a metabolite. It may be cross-communication. And it could be in toxins that you're being exposed to. So the complexity here of hormones is, is overshadowed by the grotesque, I think, ridiculous nature of how hormones are described. And I would tell you a lot of times too, docs, people that go to doctors for hormones, you know, it, it doesn't really take much to just, you know, self-call yourself a hormone expert. So because the complexity of hormones is something not to toy with, you need to understand that process and just giving somebody hormones blindly with just very simple evaluation tools. It, I think it really sets a person up for uh, the potential for a lot of complications. So though I'm a fan of hormone replacement therapy from a bioidentical perspective, Gina, I think it needs to be approached in a very, very organized way, because if not, you can take something that's natural and actually contribute to a, a disease process. Yes. You know, this is such a big deal. Um, they're all, going back to the mass torts. I remember there was an antidepressant that they were giving men in prison and that antidepressant had some kind of hormones in it. It was giving men breasts and then they were having to literally full on breasts in prison. And then they literally had to have a mastectomy to get the breast off. So yeah, you don't mess with that stuff. <laughs> Again, going back to side effects too. Yeah, that's correct. Well, you know, I'm really excited about your Arizona location and, you know, how you've set it up to help people, you know, come there and, and, and in a quiet place and really get this full body address. And thank you so much. Uh, what, what else do you think that we could dive into that would really help people know today about wellness and cancer and what you might be able to do, your facility might be able to do? Well, they, there's, you know, it's, how many hours you got? Um, because there's there's so many things that you know 
as as I, I mentioned that the word physician in Hebrew means healer, the word doctor in Latin means teacher. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I think we as physicians, we as doctors are called to do is to obviously heal, but it's to teach. You know, there's no better there's no better healer than the person healing their own body. And so one of the things that as a doctor I see, we need to teach patients how to heal themselves. So in the process of teaching, you know, I'm, I'm always in the science. I love to read. Uh, I love to write. I love to speak. I love to do all these things. So for example, you know, I got a personal brand coming out on drgoodyear.com where I'll have my own podcast and uh, where I'm going to be taking deep dives on these things. I mean, medical cannabis is one, for example. I mean, you know, medical cannabis is one of these things that everybody thinks that, you know, it's the Cheech and Chong effect. Everybody think cannabis is just a bunch of guys, you know, with doobies walking around smoking and saying, hey, dude. But what we are doing with medical cannabis is actually very evidence-based. And in many cases, these, these patients don't get high, but it's helping control pain. It's helping to improve nausea. It's helping to actually target the tumors. And, and so it's actually becoming a treatment and a side effect treatment at the same time. So that's one example. Medical cannabis is great. And all the different cannabinoids, THC, CBC, CBD, CBC, CBG, melatonin. I'm a huge fan of melatonin. I mean, the, the anti-cancer effects of melatonin are incredibly broad. And, and many of what's, many of the things that are happening with how cancer spreads is all occurring in what's called the tumor microenvironment. And this is where the tumor is, is basically interacting with the non-tumor environment. It's kind of this gray area. And melatonin really works in specific enzymes and pathways to limit that, that process of escape where these cells will escape the immune system and they'll physically escape. And melatonin, the sleep hormone, the sleep hormone at so high dose can, can be very effective in that. We give that IV and by mouth at high doses. So we'll give it IV and then we also give it in oral doses at very high doses. Is, a, is melatonin a hormone? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a hormone that's, you know, people say, well, hormone is a hormone that's produced from the pineal gland, base of the brain. And that's true. That's where a lot of the systemic levels of melatonin come from. And it gets into the central, you know, the cerebral spinal fluid. But most melatonin is actually made in and around mitochondria. Mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. They make energy. And in that process of energy production, there's a lot of oxidative stress. And so melatonin is actually made right there in and around the mitochondria to support and protect the mitochondria in an antioxidative mode. So we are now understanding that really the majority of the mitochondria, the, the majority of the melatonin is actually made in and around the mitochondria. So let's just touch base on stress and how it affects the body to create cancers. Because, you know, I think after COVID, you know, we're really starting to look at our own contribution and, you know, how our quality of life is. I, I've just seen such an overwhelming, um, you know, awakening in this area. But the one area is, so we're all talking a little bit more about mental health, especially when you're going through something like what you have to deal with. I mean, 
people's support is is a giant part of it. It should 100% go along. I mean, the fact that there's no uh, comparative mental health treatment counseling for people are automatically, in, you know, injected is really sad to me. But also the stress, how the stress hormones can create or or what how they accompany cancer or. Yeah, because we look at the stress response in everybody. In fact, when you when so many of the patients come into our clinic, when I sit down with them the first time, I ask them, well, what, what was the you know two to three years prior to your diagnosis like? And it's basically a story of just stress, you know, and, you know, the last three years. Everybody's walking around kind of, you know, triggered on pins and needles because, you know, everybody you know, you've seen this probably. You know, you're in a coffee shop and somebody coughs and everybody's like, you know, it's like, oh, I'm just sorry, I just swallowed wrong. I just had to clear my throat. You know, everybody's triggered. But stress is one of the most important responses in the body. It's a flight or fight. It's survival. And so it affects everything. You know, everybody looks at stress in, in the terms and through the visual of cortisol. And that's correct. And cortisol is a hormone that is very important in the stress response. But there's other things, adrenaline and noradrenaline. These, these are also a part of the stress response. And then there's metabolites. Again, talking about it's just not the parent compounds. There's metabolites that are there as well. So when you look at these, I already mentioned that noradrenaline, which is an acute reactant to stress coming from the adrenal glands, it can bind to the estrogen receptor. So there's one example of how stress could trigger it. Cortisol. Cortisol, more of a chronic stress response. Cortisol will upregulate the enzyme called aromatase. And that enzyme converts testosterone to estrogen. So if a woman or a man has a estrogen responsive cancer and they're under a lot of stress, they're going to be producing excessive estrogen. All of that. And then when you look at the stress response, cortisol, cortisol will actually suppress the immune system. So there's one thing that cancer loves, an immune system that doesn't do its job. The immune system is the body's defenses and stress comes in and actually suppresses the immune system. So that in and of itself will create the environment that allows cancer to grow and spread. So those are just a few examples of, of how stress can affect metabolism of other hormones, can affect uh, estrogen signaling, and can affect the immune system. So it, it's really quite broad. So do you prescribe somebody who's like really under stress some herbal remedies uh, to deal with Absolutely. the stress and when you're working on them? Yeah. Absolutely. So we'll look at the stress response again, both the you know parent compounds and then the metabolites of and the neurotransmitters associated with that. And and you really need to recognize it as you use these herbs. You know, there's a lot of great ones out there. You know, panic ginseng, ashwagandha, uh, maca. There's a lot of great ones out there. The question is, you know, what do those herbs do? How do those herbs impact the stress response? Because if the cortisol level is high, you don't necessarily want to be giving panic ginseng or Korean ginseng because that's a hot herb and it a hot adaptogen. It'll really stimulate that. So. You actually want to bring something in like Magnolia officinalis to calm that, that stress response down. So 
again, you've got to know what you're dealing with. You've got to recognize what those pathways are doing. Then you can come in with targeted and accurate natural, holistic, and integrative therapies to really target and effectively balance that system, which is the right approach. And I, I'm kind of getting up the energy out of what, what's coming to me is just looking at, like, saying going to a store and looking at all of the counters and counters of these herbs. And then you just kind of, when without any base of understanding of what, what they need and how they affect you, I mean, people just constantly have probably a cabinet full of things that their friends hold them to take, you know what I mean? And they have no balance and, and, you know, that could be harmful, I, I believe. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can drink too much water. I mean, so water, which is vital for life, you can drink too much water and it'll put you in the hospital. So there's not anything that you can, you know, that if you take too much of that can't hurt you. So herbs are great. They're powerful. But in that, you need to recognize they are powerful. So you don't approach them. But because they're sold, you know, because they're sold over the counter, people just, ah, it's herbs. Ah, it's a supplement. Well, let me tell you what, they can be very powerful. And yes. if you use them or dose them inappropriately, or you take them when you don't need them, they can create issues. Then what people go is they go, well, that didn't work. Or see, you're taking a natural herb. And what I would say is, well, well, did you, did you check the pathways that that herb was working in before you added it in? Well, no. No. Well, then how do you know you needed that? How did you know what to dose and how to dose that? You, you have to take the same rigors, the same critique that you would from a scientific perspective to the natural. They are not separate. They're one in the same. And I think what happens is even from a conventional medical side, they look at natural therapies and they go, ah, there's no science to that. It's just throwing a dart on the wall and hoping it sticks. Well, no, that's not what actually is done. Well, it's what may some may do, but if applied appropriately, no, that's not the case. Yeah. So you you bet they're powerful, and if improperly used, if improperly dosed, they can create problems. And a lot of them have marketing campaigns behind them, you know. So you know they they just hit the highlights. You know, do you have this, this, and this, and this? Like colloquial ten, I know had a big one. And I had another doctor on who was like, but that if that's not ingested in a certain way, it, it's what could cause problems or what I, you know, I, I can't quote him now, but you really do have to go through the, like you said, the pathways and do just as much rigor on these things, these other additives and make sure it's the right thing or, you know, figure out, you know, what to do with that. Because I, I've seen a lot of problems with kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. Was it Dr. Google? Isn't that it? So, and I've seen people come in, you know, they'll have three pages of supplements that they're taking. And what (laughs) I tell them, I'll say, you know, this, this is, these are all good supplements, but we need to focus on what you need right now. And, and so I, I usually whittle those down significantly. Now, I don't want to tell you I don't use supplements, but I do. But I try to be very targeted in what we do. I mean, I've again, literally, I've seen people come in with like three, three pages of supplements. So, but, you know, there's typically about somewhere between five and 10, depending on the individual, 
where I'm going to be using different targeted supplements based on what their body and lab results tell us. Because you can overtax your body. Oh, and yeah. Then- and, you know, you thought, like you say, you're taking one herb that, you know, has this great marketing campaign and it's actually working against you and you're not feeling any better. And now you spend all this money on this expensive herb and it's actually you're in worse shape. So it's, it's really important. And I love that you do acupuncture and stuff. I want, can you tell me us a little bit what hyperbaric oxygen, I'm really curious about that or how oxygen therapy works. Yeah. So, you know, when you look at cancer, um, there's a lot of things that are characteristic of cancer. And one of them is that the environment in around the tumor tends to be very low in oxygen. That's mm-hmm. called hypoxia. Okay. Now, the entire environment in and around cancer and the ball of cells that is the tumor, the entire thing is not hypoxic. There are pockets within it that are. And it's that low oxygen that actually creates a lot of the mutations that lead to a lot of the metabolic dysfunctions that people see as so characteristic of cancer. That is, people say, cancer loves sugar. Well, it's true. It's a little bit more complex than that. But one of the things that drives a lot of the enzymatic changes that allow that process to occur occur, that was discovered by Otto Warburg back in the 1920s is that hypoxia is driving that process. Hyperbaric oxygen is basically pushing oxygen above what the red blood cells can carry. Mm-hmm. So as to increase oxygen into that tumor microenvironment as best as we can. Now, when you do that, 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 just, that essentially stresses the oxygen out. But without that, things like vitamin C can't really have their full therapeutic effect. So that's why getting oxygen as much as we can saturated in that environment is really going to help other therapies actually work better. It's a therapy in and of itself, but then it's also a therapy that's going to lay the groundwork for other therapies to come in and work better. Oh, my gosh. That just makes so much sense to me. Lots of science behind it. Lots of science. Well, where can people find you and maybe get a consultation? Yeah, absolutely. So the website the, the where I'm medical director is brio-medical.com. So B-R-I-O-medical.com. There you'll find all kinds of videos and, and blog posts, et cetera. We're on almost all of the social media sites. Like I said, we've just recently launched with... Uh, uh, TikTok, which is that's interesting, but uh, I have a personal brand website coming out, drgoodyear.com. And uh, again, as I mentioned, we'll have a blog post that comes with that where we'll be talking about, you know, we'll be taking deep dives on these therapies and talking about the mechanisms and actually talking with, you know, a lot of experts, not just in the integrative cancer field, but outside of that and look at perspectives that they have on their profession and how that can help us help people with cancer. And you have about four full-time doctors, it looks like, on your, you're in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is just such a healing place anyways, you know, so energy there is just really beautiful and wonderful. And taking this whole body approach to help people, you know, is overwhelmingly heartfelt. And we're so grateful to you. And I love your name. It's so interesting how 
you know, you were chosen for this this path and that you have such an uplifting name because I think words matter and you know I just do and it's just me that you have this like something very positive in in your contribution is there anything you would like to leave our listeners to with today yeah so if you're diagnosed with cancer the last thing that people have on their mind is hope yes there's no word. I, I agree with what you said about words are important. If we don't understand words and where they come from and their context, we can't communicate effectively. And a lot of what we deal with today is people don't understand the words that come out of their mouth. But I'm a writer, so I'm a geek like that. But Nobody sitting there across from a doctor that's being that's telling them they have cancer is going, I have hope. Now, there are some, but most are gripped with fear. But what I would tell people that are in that position or have loved ones or friends that are in that position is there is hope. There is hope. Our job as physicians is not to tell you what your body can't do. It's to show you what your body can do. And let your body decide. That's the hope that a healing teaching strategy with a natural, holistic, and integrative strategy brings to patients with cancer. Not one that destroys, but one that targets the tumor and heals. So that that would be the last words I say. There's always hope to heal. There's always hope. That's right. Thank always. You so much. You bet, Jean. Well, it's great to have you on. This has been Gina Cavalier at the Liberated Healer Podcast. Thank you for listening and liking and subscribing and all of your support. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Nathan, for your hour of really important time. I know how much you're you're pulled on your time, so we really appreciate it. And we want to send help to everybody. Please. That's right. That's awesome. Be kind. Thank you so much. Bye, Dr. Nathan. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us online at theliberatedhealer.com, on Instagram at Liberated Healer Podcast, or on Facebook at The Liberated Healer. Give us a follow, subscribe, send us a message if you so feel, and thank you for your support. Yes. Yeah.